This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. This is Ike Ahmed. And I'm Arsham Shabani. And we want to welcome you to GT the Podcast. We're bringing this to you together with BMC and Glaucoma Today. To offer audible insights into current topics in glaucoma care. Presented by the authors of our latest, most read GT articles. Check it out. Welcome to GT the Podcast. In this episode, Richie Kahn, a clinical researcher and patient advocate, leads a discussion between physicians and patients on the topic of home monitoring technology and ophthalmology. Richie, who is a patient with a rare and progressive form of optic atrophy, as well as a clinical trial participant, is joined by Dr. Barbara Roscoe, Dr. Craig Chaya, and Dorian DeMeo, a longtime glaucoma patient of Drs. Roscoe and Chaya. The group exchanges ideas on the use and value of home monitoring devices for measuring IOP or performing mobile perimetry. Here's Richie. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for joining. Today's episode of GT, the podcast, will be an opportunity to hear from patients and clinicians about their experience with home monitoring technologies. Whether measuring IOP or utilizing mobile perimetry, home monitoring can be an effective way to gather data points between visits and outside of traditional clinic hours. The result, data-driven treatment that can be tailored to the patient. Dorian, Barbara, and Craig, thanks so much for joining the conversation. Before we begin, I thought we could do some quick intros if that's okay with you. My name is Richie Khan. I'm both the patient with a rare and progressive form of optic atrophy, as well as a clinical trial participant. Professionally, I'm a clinical researcher and patient advocate, working to reduce the time it takes to bring promising new therapies and diagnostics to market. Dorian, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is uh, Dorian DeMeo, and I'm a retired aerospace engineer, and I uh, have been a longtime uh, glaucoma patient of uh, Barbara and Craig's. Thanks, Dorian. Barbara, over to you. Hi, thanks, Richie. So Barbara Roscoe, I'm an adjunct professor in the Department of Ophthalmology at the Moran Eye Center and the Department of Biomedical Engineering at the University of Utah in Utah. And I am also an entrepreneur. And as it relates to the eye care home, I am the medical director and co-founder of a company called My Eyes, which helps to get the eye care home into the hands of patients. Thanks so much, Barbara. And last but certainly not least, over to you, Craig. Great. Thanks, Richie. I'm Craig Chaya, and I'm an associate professor of ophthalmology at the Moran Eye Center, University of Utah, uh, and, and with a special focus in cataracts anterior segment and glaucoma care. Thanks so much, Craig. Now, I'm curious, how did you learn about home monitoring in the first place? And what have the impacts of these technologies been like, both for you as a clinician and for your patients? Well, my background was as an internist before I became an ophthalmologist. And so, you know, we've been using different types of home monitoring technologies in internal medicine for a long time, such as for cardiac patients. So I, I, I guess I've been patiently waiting for technology to catch up on the ophthalmology space. And we've had uh, glimpses of home monitoring over the last probably maybe five to eight years. 
there was, you know, at one time, I don't know how prevalent it is being used around the world, but there was a contact lens that was applied for patients to be able to monitor their pressure. However, there were some limitations to that technology because it was clunky for patients to wear, uh, and it only really monitored patients' pressure for about a day or so before the battery wore out and had to be returned. Um, so I think the I've been hearing about home monitoring for a while at meetings, at professional meetings, it's been a hot topic. And I think what really thrust this into the spotlight was COVID, uh, as it has done for many different things in our lives. Uh, but really, home monitoring and teleophthalmology came to the forefront at the peak of the pandemic, when we had patients who were really nervous about coming into the office for monitoring. So our, our first foray, so to speak, was actually doing drive-by pressure checks for patients who were nervous about coming into the clinic. And around that time, uh, we had discussions just before the pandemic started, we had discussions in our department about acquiring the same technology for patients to be able to use at home. Um, and that's kind of the, the, I think, the impetus that drove our, our strong interest over the last two years in, in this technology. Thanks, Craig. And what about you, Barb? I know you're quite familiar with the iHome. So it's funny, it actually became or uh, was introduced to me actually by a patient who had severe advanced glaucoma, who's also a patient of Craig's. And unbeknownst to him, his pressure was spiking quite high at night. And he had a lot of challenges actually getting access to the eye care home because um, it was not readily available for patients to purchase it. And that was really the incentive um, to trying to get this device into patients' hands, even on a rental basis. I think, you know, one of the things that Craig said is, is so true. We've known now for years, you know, there's been numerous papers published that IOP is a, is a dynamic variable measurement that is not static. And yet we've never really focused on those nighttime spikes or any spike that was occurring outside of the clinic to really change our management. Um, and it was really the eye care home and having access to that, um, those variabilities in IOP for my patients that really made me see the value because it really changed the management. Yeah, and on my side, personally, um, I've used the eye care home as well as a few investigational mobile perimetry devices. Now, I'll admit I'm not the most tech savvy person. Despite some copious training, I did struggle a little bit with eye care. But, you know, with my 10 days of use, I absolutely saw the value. Uh, along with my clinical care team, we learned pretty conclusively that I don't have those diurnal fluctuations in pressure, which was immensely useful. With my particular form of optic atrophy, um, though it's monitored the same way as glaucoma, IOP isn't as much of a challenge for me as getting a sense of what's going on with my visual field. So thinking about those mobile perimetry devices, um, those AI-enabled headsets, I really loved the ability to test according to my schedule, had the ability to either drill in on central vision or do a broader assessment. And really, I just found it's been a great way, uh, home monitoring that is, to evaluate my visual field progress and you know, connect with my clinician between visits to determine, you know, maybe something's going on, I've got to come in sooner, maybe we've got to tweak some medications. But it was all about also um, 
providing some good solid data for me, you know, it's one thing when I come in and I share with my glaucoma doc, um, something that I'm perceiving, maybe they kind of look at me like, oh, this is interesting, but they're not quite sure. But then they look at the visual fields um, from these at home uh, evaluations and they go, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, Dorian, I'm curious, um, you're quite experienced with the eye care specifically. Is that right? Oh yeah, I've been using it for about uh, a year and a half. <clears throat> and it first came to my attention from Barbara. I was under her long-term care. And generally speaking, my pressures were under control during the day. But uh, we noticed uh, through field division testing that my uh, eyes were beginning to deteriorate. My better eye was beginning to deteriorate. And Barbara uh, suggested that perhaps my pressures were spiking at night. And that was the original impetus be behind getting the home care device. And as it turns out, uh, that prompted surgery by Craig. And we had a chance to get a baseline on my uh, pressures prior to the surgery and then after the surgery. So we had a, a great way of <clears throat> monitoring my progress um, uh, throughout my throughout my recovery. That's fantastic. It's all about better tailoring the care. And I think, um, Richie, what's been really interesting too is something that Dorian alluded to, and I think Craig has been finding the same, is not all IOP lowering agents are equally as effective in lowering that, that IOP spike. And um, even surgically, you know, we're seeing different surgical procedures um, more effective with that nighttime spike and definitely with medications as well. And I think as we look at sustained IOP lowering, you know, implants, devices, drugs, et cetera, this, this, you know, technology, the eye care home, this device can really enable us to see that tail off, you know, when is that patient? So they're not running in, I get, you know, every other day or once a week to say, okay, you know, your medication's worn off now. It allows that, um, that ability to detect, you know, that tail off and that slow increase in IOP. Yeah, that, that's a good point because uh, both Barbara and Craig had told me that they arrest the procedure uh, might last around six months. So at about the eight month, at about the six month period, I started monitoring my pressures very carefully. And at the time we had backed off to my medications to twice a day, but then uh, almost right on schedule, my pressures began to pick up during the day. And uh, Barbara was able to uh, administer for me uh, uh, drops at the middle of the day, which kept those peaks down and then later uh, in the evening. Now, without having that home device, I probably would have had to try to schedule an appointment uh, with my specialist at uh, my other home, and that might have taken a month or possibly two. But here, I had an immediate uh, result, uh, you know, which uh, which informed Barbara of my condition. So it, it really was a uh, so very helpful. Yeah, that's a fantastic point, Dorian. I guess one of the things I'm wondering, you know, I think it's pretty clear to the group tonight that there's a lot of value in home monitoring, um, keeping tabs on disease progression, what's happening between clinic visits, but also recognizing that home monitoring isn't the norm, at least not quite yet. I'm curious for Barbara and Craig, um, 
What did you think the first time you heard about home monitoring? How informative has the data been? And lastly, when you talk home monitoring with your colleagues, what's the response? Are they generally receptive? What about patients? Craig, you want to go ahead? Sure. You know, I think as far as our colleagues, I think there's two different groups of people among glaucoma specialists, particularly with regards to home monitoring. When you look at a lot of our big data sets that we have in terms of clinical trials that have been conducted, there was no such thing as home monitoring uh, for those patients at the time. And so I think some of my colleagues have some reservations about making clinical decisions um, based on home monitoring. Uh, They're more used to, you know, having office pressures and making decisions based on that. But I I find that, you know, there are a lot of things in medicine where we we take the best data that we have, and then we actually have to do, um, you know, a little bit of of a stretch in terms of real world application and and how to take that data. And, And I think home monitoring is really just giving us a more complete picture of what's going on with the patient. Um, rather than having a patient come in for multiple visits at different times of the day to, to gather a snapshot, I can now have a patient obtain so many pressure readings in a week that would probably take two years to fill in a, in a normal clinic span. So I, I do think that it, it's helpful for me to be able to make a decision quickly. Um, you know, the other thing that I like to think about as a glaucoma specialist is, is almost like you're a air traffic controller. And what you're trying to do is figure out how to make sure that you can land people safely and figure out who's off the radar screen or who may be in a dangerous spot. I mean, the reality is, is that there are so many patients who are undetected with glaucoma. And if we rely on our traditional means of screening them in the office and and doing our regular visits, there's just not enough time in the day, I think, for all of us to be able to manage all these patients. So I think it gives me a sense of relief knowing that patients are empowered to be able to manage their condition. And they can quickly alert me when there is a, you know, a, an alarm. And so we can get those patients in quickly and make a timely decision. Um, and so I, I, for one, am, am very bullish on in, ter- in terms of empowering patients and getting the technology in their hands. I, my hope is that one day that uh, eye care or other types of devices in terms of home monitoring will be very similar to the blood pressure cuff, which is easily obtainable for patients with hypertension, where you can easily go down to your local health health store and purchase a blood pressure cuff so that you can do your own home monitoring and alert your internist or family physician when things are awry. And those are great points, Craig. And I think the other thing, Dorian you know, um, and Richie, is we so often, you know, where we're used to measuring things in a certain way. And, and to Craig's point, we've always relied on just one random, you know, IOP in an office. And I think the other thing that I find so fascinating is just, we don't really understand why certain people spike. And to Craig's point, I've had patients who are ocular hypertensives their pressures are always in the low 20s, but yet they don't have damage. And I'll send them home with the eye care home for a week and there's no fluctuation. They're not spiking. So on the flip side where you go, wow, we need to be more aggressive. You definitely do take a step back and you go, wow, we may be okay. We may just be able to continue to follow you. So it is, it's, it's the totality of the data. You know, you can't diagnose glaucoma with one IOP measurement 
um, or one visual field. So again, to Craig's point, it's just giving you so much more information to really understand physiologically what's going on in that patient. The other thing, Richie, I'll add is that, you know, we have some good research data to suggest that if you can maintain your pressure under a certain level, uh, that you're going to have less visual field progression over time. However, even in that subset of patients, those, some of those patients still went on to progress. And I think, yeah, I don't think it's the whole picture, but I do, I do think that part of the picture is that we weren't able to capture this type of data in these large clinical trials. I agree a hundred percent. And the other thing, you know, it's so interesting too, is when patients progress and they're controlled in the office, what do we blame? We say they're not compliant. They're not adhering to their eye drops, mm -hmm. but really what this data is showing us that there is such extreme fluctuations that a person like Dorian or, you know, other patients we've had could be in the low teens in the clinic and yet spiking into the twenties at night. Yeah, that's a great point, Barbara. And I'm curious, when you think about all of the conversations you've had with your patients about home monitoring, is there a particular um, type of patient or clinical profile where you say, you know what, out of all the patients I'm, I'm chatting with today, you know, this is the one or these are the two or three I think would potentially benefit the most or these are the patients that we could learn the most from through home monitoring, or do you think it's just more broadly applicable? This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. Craig, want to take that one first? <laughs> yeah, you know, honestly, I th I, I'm so impressed, or I think patients are so impressed um, by, by the you know, just the, the drive to be able to understand the disease as much as possible and to really get as much data to make as much of an evidence-based decision as possible. So when I show patients the, the graph that comes out from the eye care home test, uh, many of them are just in awe that, wow, I, I really had no idea that that could be possible, that my pressure could fluctuate as much as it did, or wow, that's reassuring, my pressure really isn't going high. And so I feel good. Like, you know, for example, I have a patient who's on the fence about starting treatment, and I am too, and they're anxious. And after we get the data, though, and that data may reassure the patient that, you know what, you're actually going to be okay. Your, your pressure really isn't fluctuating a lot. I think we can go ahead and, and just watch you carefully. That's very reassuring for a patient to know that, hey, my pressure really isn't out of control, that it's fairly well controlled and that it's safe to monitor. Whereas the flip side is I show a patient who has what appears to be well-controlled pressure in the mm -hmm. office. Uh, they are so grateful that we can kind of make this decision quickly in terms of uh, a treatment that may help to blunt that pressure spike. So I find it incredibly reassuring for both me and for patients as well. I agree. And as Dorian brought up in, in Dorian's case, you know, visual fields, are there's definitely a subjective element to it, right? And there's, a, you know, a lot of variability from test to test. And there was a change on Dorian's visual field in his good eye. And it was questionable. It was subtle. And we looked at it and I was like, well, we could bring you back and repeat it in three or four months and really see if it's real. But when we did the eye care home and that eye was spiking, 
like, you know, we really suspected it was real and it did change his management and, and led him to surgery faster because that early visual field change probably was real. You know, let, let me add from a patient point of view that when you go to the clinic on a periodic basis and you know that your pressures may vary according to the day, you feel a little bit hopeless that you have no control of what's going on. But with the home care device, uh, you build a greater a team relationship with your provider. Then you feel like you're part of the treatment, or at least you could have some impact on the treatment. So I, I think that's very reassuring for the patient uh, to get them involved and to make them a part of the, uh, of the healthcare team. The other thing that's interesting too, that Craig alluded to, is we had another patient um, who was at the VA and again, advanced damage and his pressures were sitting around 11. And we thought, are we really controlling you? And there was nothing that really confirmed progression. We tried a lot of different medications and we were really on the fence whether or not to take him to surgery is the next step. And with the eye care home, he was indeed spiking to high teens, low twenties. And so again, it's not so much that we're trying to get the 11 to an eight, but we're definitely trying to get that 19 or that 20 back down to the low teens. So again, the, your, your target pressure also changes slightly. Um, and you just look at what you're trying to do differently. It's really about flattening that curve as Craig alluded to before. Now, admittedly, Richie, with all of this interest in home monitoring, we have yet to have a large trial mm -hmm. or a cohort of patients that we can say, yes, you're having wild fluctuations in your pressure. We propose some sort of intervention to flatten the curve, and then it leads to prevention of, of visual field loss. That data is still missing, right? Like we, we as clinicians, we feel that it's an important piece in order to flatten the curve to prevent further uh, optic nerve damage. But we have yet to see a very large data set. And my hope is that over time, as this becomes more commonplace, uh, we'll be able to pull the data together from a number of clinicians and, and be able to kind of present that type of information. Um, but I, I, I predict that future clinical trials may use mm -hmm. this as an element. Um, as more data comes to light, I think this will be part of large clinical trials is not just looking at your typical in-office pressure, but looking at this diurnal fluctuation more closely. And it's really interesting, Craig, that you bring that up because in fact, there are some um, large pharma companies that are looking to include this. Again, thinking about how do you differentiate the next IOP lowering drop, right? We've got a lot of different IOP lowering medications we can choose from, but really what is doing the best to flatten that curve? And it, the other thing, when we think about how these IOP lowering drops get approved, they get approved basically on three time points during the day, mm -hmm. you know, an 8 a.m., either a 10 or a 12 and a 4 p.m. Mm -hmm. So I wonder down the road, you know, should we not start thinking about that 24-hour curve mm -hmm. more closely? Right. Yeah, you know, I think about a couple things based on your comments, Barbara and, and Craig. Um, number one, when we talk about those three time points throughout visit one, visit three, visit five, whatever it is, uh, I think a lot about patient burden and, you know, the amount of time we're asking people to 
come into the clinic to take time off work, you know, to, to deal with all of those logistical challenges and, and barriers to participating in clinical trials. But the related topic that always comes to mind is when we talk about bringing some of these devices through the regulatory review process, the pathway to having anything that's approved for home use direct to patient, it's not that clear cut. It's not necessarily what a lot of device manufacturers are used to. Um, you know, oftentimes I'll, I'll talk to folks who've got a fantastic technology that they're thinking about developing in two ways, you know, for at-home monitoring and then use at the clinic. And they very quickly pivot to use at the clinic. It's just a lot simpler. Um, that actually takes me to a couple more topics I wanted to, to talk through. I was going to start with training and, and onboarding and finish with access. But Barbara, I think you know where I'm going. Let's start with access first for some of these technologies, particularly for the eye care. Um, knowing about some of the regulatory hurdles and what's involved there, the prescription requirements. How do you, um, through your practice and through my eyes, address some of these challenges? And have you ever had any situations where a patient has said, look, I'm really interested in getting access to this technology, either renting or buying, I need some guidance. What would you suggest? So yes, so it is, it's regulated or cleared. Um, through a 510k as a prescription device that is to be used in conjunction with clinical IOP measurements. So the way it's cleared or approved is it's not supposed to be used as a standalone. It's a complement device and it does need a prescription. And often patients find that their doctor will not, you know, believes, you know, doesn't believe in writing that prescription for them. And, um, yeah, you know, I think like we're doing here, the best you can do is to is to educate. There's no, I don't see any downside to it. You know, it's, it. yes, you know, there can be some challenges with learning it at first, but once you're able to use it, you know, what's the downside? It's just more information and more data. You're looking at trends. Um, but yes, it can be sometimes a challenge for a patient to actually get access to it. Yeah, um, Craig, I'm, I'm curious to get your point as well, a, a quick comment. You know, I think what's the downside? There's really very little, but I think one of the um, areas that perhaps sometimes we gloss over is the related change management. You know, if clinicians or patients are used to practice A and we come in and say, look, there's a great technology that's going to disrupt what you're doing. You know, people very reasonably kind of get defensive and they think, well, what, what's wrong with what we're doing? You know, it's been working for years. Um, so I think we have to really be careful when we talk about some of the value, you know, making it clear that it's a nice supplement to what's being done. It fits into good clinical practice and you know, adds value to uh, better tailored care for patients while providing additional information about what's happening beyond or between clinic visits. But Craig, I'm, I'm curious, um, in your experience, access, training, onboarding with some of these technologies, um, was there any sort of learning curve? What was the training like for some of these technologies and, and was it sufficient? Well, particularly for the eye care home, this is technology re rebound tonometry we've had for many years, even before the eye care home became available. So it's a technology that we are, have already been using in the office. Um, so in terms of being familiar with it, there was no problem. 
I think one of the issues for patients onboarding and training for patients is that, um, you know, we, we've, we've done this remotely. And for some of our patients, doing that type of training remotely has been a challenge. So we've had a few patients that, had, that have had to come in uh, for hands-on one-on-one training to actually make sure that they were using the device appropriately. You know, it, it still requires a patient to be uh, somewhat coordinated. So if I have a patient with a significant tremor, it can be difficult to obtain that type of information uh, on some patients. So overall, though, I would say for the vast majority of patients, and that's why we usually have them have the, pa- uh, have the device for at least a week to allow, you know, the first few days are kind of getting used to it, understanding how the, t- how the device fits on their face. Um, but a- after a few days, I really feel like they get the handle of it and, and are able to quickly obtain the, the measurements that we need. So yeah. for, for the most part, I have found it to be easy to implement in the clinic setting and for patients to understand how, how to work the device. Yeah, I, I think I can attest to that. It, it, uh, I was fortunate to have about 30 minutes of a technician uh, to show me how to use the device in, in particular setting the proper standoffs, standoffs from uh, my cheek and my eye. And that was very important to get that right. And also to get the sense of where the center of the device was. But after a number of missteps for the first 15 minutes, it caught on very quickly. And then right after that, uh, it became almost second nature, even in the middle of the night when, you, uh, you know, when you're half asleep. So it, it uh, takes a little while to get there, but the once adapted very quickly. And what's nice is there's no anesthetics. You know, the patient really, you know, maybe it's sort of like you feel this sense on your eyelash if that, but there's no discomfort, no pain. And the the device actually has sensors built in. So it'll tell you whether or not it's it's centered on the eye, whether it's, you know, perpendicular to the cornea and also whether the reading is good, excellent or poor. So there is device feedback to um, to help the patient. Yeah, I think the the lack of any sort of numbing drops being necessary is huge. I think that real-time feedback for patients so they know whether or not they're accurately capturing that data is immensely beneficial. Um, I will say it's been a couple of years now. I feel like the training that I got at Will's Eye was pretty robust. I think I had almost an hour and I think I walked out of there with a, a certificate of mastery of the device or something <laughs> similar. Um, Dorian, I'm curious then, so based on your experience, two questions, would you recommend home monitoring to other patients and what lessons learned or perhaps pro tips would you want them to know going into it? Well, I most definitely would uh, recommend it. I think I was just as curious as uh, Barbara and Craig about my condition and uh, what was progressing and maybe what was driving my situation. Uh, but it does require, I think, a good uh, working relationship uh, with your doctor. And I've been fortunate in having that, having doctors who have been very responsive to the changes in my uh, high pressure. And uh, I would just say you have to stay with it. At first, I think perhaps you might be a, a, a little put off by the rebound technology on your eye, but it's, a, it's very much of a, of a non-issue. In fact, you can even blink. You can't blink quick enough uh, to prevent the uh, rebound uh, from uh, from affecting the measurement, the accurate measurement. So uh, I would say that uh, once you start it, it's uh, really something that you're 
likely to continue because you, you're curious about the results and it's just something that you can work with your, your doctor on in order to improve your care. That's absolutely fantastic, Dorian. I really appreciate you sharing your experiences with home monitoring uh, with us and with everyone for GT today. Um, Craig, Barbara, is there anything that I missed? I know, Barbara, I definitely want to give you the opportunity to talk about my eyes for those that are interested in getting access to the device, but I just want to make sure we didn't miss anything here in our discussion. No, I, I just think, you know, where we sort of started with, we do know from all our very well-conducted large prospective studies that they've showed us, you know, higher IOP, more fluctuation, you know, does indeed lead to optic nerve damage. So again, if, you know, if, if I was the patient, I would for sure want to know what that variability in my IOP was. And something that Craig said earlier too, that now I wonder is how many patients are we missing because in the clinic, their IOP is normal, right? And I think you asked me, um, you asked us that, Richie, you know, what's the, what's the stereotype? Um, I personally had started using this more in patients with advanced damage that were normal tension or very asymmetric um, damage. And now I'm wondering if I shouldn't be giving it to more patients. And it sounds like Craig actually may be, you know, giving it to more of his, you know, even healthy individuals or ocular hypertensives for that matter. Yeah, you know, I think ultimately our goal is to prevent morbidity from glaucoma. We want to keep people seeing well, well into their later years. And I think what we're going to find out, and I think this is true of many chronic diseases, is that you want to try to intervene before it's too late. There, there, there comes a point in glaucoma where your interventions may have less bang for their buck in, in, in terms of preventing patients from progressing. And I think like many chronic diseases, whether it be hypertension or hyperlipidemia, and, and glaucoma is really in that spectrum of chronic diseases, uh, we have to catch patients earlier because our interventions, we have, one of the challenging things is we have so many interventions now. You know, when I look back, I've been in practice now, I finished all my formal training in 2010, and my practice is wildly different now than what my training was. And, mm -hmm. and I attest that to all the great new technology that we have. And it's almost a dizzying array of choices that we have to treat patients. But I need more data to guide and to be able to customize that for each patient. Like it's not just a, a cookie cutter treatment that's going to apply for all patients. And I think this type of information is super useful to be able to say, you know what, I think we can, we can uh, do a non-invasive treatment and first or I have some patients where they're clearly going to need surgery as the next line. So it, it's made me, I think, a better clinician and, and allowed me to make decisions quicker, where I, whereas before I would rely on maybe months or years worth of data before actually making a decision. Um, I Now I feel like I can make those decisions a lot quicker if I have a patient who I suspect is losing vision and I suspect that the, the pressure is out of control data like this helps me to say, you know what, I think we need to move in a different direction and we don't have to wait before they lose more vision before we, we make that, that, that hard decision. It is a tough decision to recommend surgery for a patient, uh, but with this type of information to be able to share with the patient, um, it's easier uh, to convince patients that they may need to, inter we need to intervene sooner rather than later. And that's a really good point, Craig. I mean, how many times in the past would we just continue to add another eyedrop 
add another eye drop, come back in three months, repeat the visual field. And it is, it's a, it's a chronic progressive disease. We know that. And with the interventions we have now, especially the surgical interventions, the risk, the morbidity is low. And if you can, again, intervene earlier and not wait months to years until damage develops, that's a huge savings and a huge improvement in the care we could give. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Um, It's a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. And Richie, and yes, so if patients do want to rent a eye care home, it's myeyes.net is the website. And all they need is a a subscription from their their doctor. Myeyes.net. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of GT the Podcast. If you have any feedback or topic suggestions, find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And stay tuned for more hot topics in glaucoma care on GT the Podcast. Podcast.